So I usually introduce people, but maybe you should just introduce yourselves, esteemed panel. All right, esteemed colleague. <laughs> I'm Hannah McCarthy. And I'm Erica Janik. Today we're doing Ask Sam. Why do geese make veins? Does a bumblebee sneeze? Can a person eat trees? Can a polar bear freeze? Is a kidney stone kind of like a pearl in a clam? Well, I don't know. Ask Sam. So, uh, esteemed Taylor Quimby, are you not going to be in this, are you? This is the only moment. (laughs) 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 Colleague Taylor Quimby is going to play us our first question. Marvelous. Hi, Sam. My name is Sam, and I am from Salt Lake City, Utah. Being from a desert, every time I see a decorative fountain, I have to cringe just a little bit and wonder about the waste of water. So, the question is, do decorative fountains waste water? And how much water do they waste? Thanks very much. This is really interesting because we were just talking about wasting water a little bit ago in the pod and how I am sort of like, water is not a thing you can waste. I actually, <laughs> I overheard that and I thought like, I'm going to stick it to my dad next time I go home. And he's like, you have to take a short shower. Well, I was like, does, does your dad have a decorative fountain? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So why is water not a thing you can waste? Because of the water cycle. Wherever the water is coming from, I, I would assume Salt Lake City is coming from like a, a water utility, um, and it's being pumped into that fountain. It goes up into the air. Presumably, it's being recycled somehow. Um, gosh, with with fountains, it's like where does that water go once it goes down the drain? Doesn't it just cycle That's what the I same thought. water? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there is water lost to the system though, in evaporation, um, which happens all the more when things are shot up into the air, but. When we say lost, where does it go? It goes up into the atmosphere, and it rains down somewhere else, and it comes back into the system. So so when we talk about wasting water, we're really talking about are we moving water out of the watershed uh, so that we're not going to be able to use it again? Um, and in places like Salt Lake City, where it's a desert, <laughs> like that is a problem because Salt Lake City r- relies on the Wasatch Mountains, all the snow up in the mountains melts. And, and that's where their water supply comes from. So planetarily speaking, Cannot you're not wasting the water. Yeah. But that fountain in Utah is probably sending water to the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and But then, which leads to my other point, which is when you're wasting water, what you're really wasting is energy. So think about the water going into a municipal fountain. It had to be treated had to be pumped from somewhere. It has to go through a wastewater treatment plant. What about the decorative fountains that have the artificially blue water? In places like Las Vegas, the water is often like teal or like turquoise. and But some of it is evaporating into the air. And we're breathing it. We're breathing it. It's raining on us. That blue mall water is oh, raining on us. This is what we're really going to crack this one open. <laughs> Four-part investigative series. <laughs> Cool. Next question? Yeah. Hi, Sam. This is Erica from Dover, New Hampshire. I have a Bichon Freeze, and my dog has hair. So my question for you is, if all dogs come from wolves, how did hair get into their... uh... Species. There we go. Oh my god. Uh how did hair get into the dog? Isn't it still fur? Well Yeah, what's the difference between fur and hair? Yeah. I don't know the difference between hair and fur. Yeah. I feel like it's got something to do with like dander. I think of it as like 
texture and length, but that sounds wrong. Don't some dogs have like two types of fur? I was just thinking like oh, we yeah, had like a Newfoundland when I was growing up that has like the waterproof undercoat and then the big shaggy. That's the layer that they're shedding all the time. Okay. And which one's fur and which one's hair? Are they both fur? I, it's all fur. Is it about the follicle that it's growing out of? Maybe the, the follicle is different. <laughs> yeah. Like Sam has fur, we have hair. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> We're going to have to farm this one out. Oh, yeah. Luckily, there are a lot of people in the world who care about dogs. That's true. Okay, so uh, essentially there is no difference between hair and fur. It's all basically the same stuff. So this is Jessica Heckman. She's with the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT down. Uh, it's it's a genomics type place. Uh, but she also has her own blog called Dog Zombie. Uh, she's very into <laughs> dog uh, breeding and genetics. When we talk about hair versus fur, what we're really talking about is that some dogs have two layers. They have an undercoat. And then they have guard hairs. Um, and the real, the real difference uh, when we talk about dogs that are hairy dogs is that they don't have the undercoat. And there's basically one gene. Like they've, they've sequenced the genome of dogs. And there's one gene that turns that on and off. Uh, and that – so it's, it's just a mutation that happened. And it happened long before um, we started to breed dogs for it. And we know this because there's this thing called the village dog um, – which is considered sort of like the er dog. It's like the dog before we started messing with them. Um, and I think I've seen this dog. Yeah. Well, there are different ones all over the world. But, oh, oh, okay. But 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 you are right. Like they have kind of a distinctive look. It's kind of just like it's like essence of dog. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and there are village dogs in different parts of the world, and some of them have no undercoat, and some of them have an undercoat. So I would imagine, and I don't know this for sure, but I would guess that this lack of the undercoat would be advantageous in hotter parts of the world and that if you looked at village dogs in hotter parts of the world, that more of them would have a single coat and that if you looked at them in colder parts of the world, that more of them would have the double coat. I don't know that for sure. It's just a guess, but that's how things work. Fun fun fact, uh, hair is keratin. Right. And keratin in different species turns into all sorts of craziness. So porcupine quills are technically <gasps> hair and... Ooh pangolin scales? Does anyone know what a pangolin is? Uh-uh. You should Google pangolin. Um, they're an endangered species and they get trafficked all the time. It's kind of sad uh, because they're kind of cool. Oh, it's like a anteater armadillo. Yeah. And and, oh. in, and instead of like plates, like armadillo has plates, the, the pangolin has these like scales that are sort of like leaves. That's keratin. It's the same wow. stuff. Um, our DNA as creatures in the world is very good at taking the same stuff and doing lots of different things with it that we then call different names. Um, and that's the difference with between hair and fur, too, is it's just, you know, basically the same thing. <laughs> Nature is amazing. <laughs> All right. What else we got? Hi, this is Myrie calling from Eatonville, Washington. And I'm wondering why there are aquatic mammals, amphibians, reptiles, and semi-aquatic birds, but there are no terrestrial fish. Thanks. Bye. What would that even look like? Yeah. Isn't it true that there are terrestrial fish? Isn't there like the mud skipper thing? They like live outside of water for a little while and they sort of like crawl along in the mud? Yeah. Question answered. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like like in textbooks, when you're talking about evolution, 
there's always that picture of a fish like walking out of the water and that's how it happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is that in a textbook or the New Yorker? That might be a New Yorker cartoon. Yeah, but and and it, it like in my imagination of evolution, it starts with amphibians. Yeah, we were all water things. Right. And then we were a thing that could be in both. Yep. And then we were an amphibian that like lived more and more time on land, like a toad. Yep. And then we were people. Pretty much that's the order. Yeah. <laughs> That guy in that Guillermo del Toro movie, what do you think he was? Oh, the uh, the Shape of Water? Yeah. He needed water to survive. Was he a terrestrial fish? He was a terrestrial fish, I think. So should we call someone? Yeah. I also think Google knows the answer to this question. But it will be one that's more satisfactorily answered by somebody who knows a ton about fish and can tell us lots of cool fish facts. Yeah. Fish facts. So the premise of the question was that there are no terrestrial fish. But, of course, this ignores the most famous terrestrial fish, the lungfish. <gasps> what? Taylor, you going to play some tape for me? Oh, sorry. I didn't rec- I didn't really. <laughs> I was like, this is a long pause. <laughs> you guys have nothing to say we about this? We are shocked. All right. Hold on. Yeah. The, 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 well, the, the lungfish. <laughs> the lungfish has lungs. Um so this is Melanie Stiasny. She is the curator of fishes at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Uh, there are three strands. We got African, South American, and Australian lungfish. Uh, and all of them, it's an adaptation to drought. Like, they'll live in these really, like, small bodies of stagnant water that dry up. The African lungfish, the water will d- dry up completely, and it'll burrow under the mud and live there for, like, two years with no water. What a life. <laughs> <laughs> well, and some of them have both gills and lungs, but they live in water that doesn't have very much oxygen in it. And so they'll struggle to get enough oxygen through their gills alone. And so they'll come to the surface and there's like this <gasps> sound apparently of the, as they come up and they're like, Bleh. oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's this is a better answer than I had even imagined. That's great. But that's just one. You've got you've got the mud skipper, which is uh, a fish that carries a bubble of water around its gills and can survive for like days out of the water with that little bubble. Um, then there are all these fish that that have gills that can just successfully extract air from the air, oxygen from the air. So there's like walking catfish, uh, the climbing carp, uh, the snakehead, all of all of these which are uh, like invasive in certain places because they can like cross from one body to uh, to another. But I mean, there are lots of fish that can go days out of the water. But they're all of them are tied because they all really essentially rely on gills for respiration. Primarily, they're all going to have to go back into the water ultimately. They would just desiccate and die and suffocate. Do you say walking carp or walking catfish? Walking catfish, climbing carp. Oh Both are terrifying. Those are <laughs> such scary fish. And just imagining them like doing that. Catfish are so scary Yeah, they're looking. super scary. And then imagining it walking. The walking catfish uses its fins. The climbing <laughs> carp drags itself along with its gills. I think it's weird to think of something crawling with its gills. That's like us... Moving with our mouth, like <laughs> just mouthing our way forwards. <laughs> Sam, did you put a break in this episode? I guess this is it. We're headed to break, folks. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Uh, we are answering listener questions that have been piling up in the Ask Sam inbox. And on to the next one. Hey, Sam. This is Jeff from Plainview, Long Island. I just recently uh, converted uh, my house from an oil heat. I got a wood-burning stove and did it to save some money. And I wanted to know, is it better environmentally to burn the wood than it is to get the oil from the earth and all that scientific stuff? So, uh, yeah, just wondering. Maybe it's a good episode for Sam Ruined It. (laughs) (laughs) So, does anyone have a wood stove? Well, soon. Oh, yeah? Mm Mm-hmm. Wait, what, uh, what, yeah, tell me more. We had one in our old house, and our new house has a gas stove, and we don't like it. So we will be getting a wood stove soon. So I've thought about this a lot, because we built a brand new house uh, and chose for our source of heat, wood, and electricity. I grew up in a house that had no heat. It was just wood. And at first I saw it like totally uncritically. I was just like, I love wood stoves because you get to lie in front of them and read your book. And like you go outside and there's that lovely wood smoke smell. Uh, but you can't be environment reporter for long before you encounter the American Lung Association. And they're like, every time you're smelling that wood smoke smell, you're dying a little bit. <laughs> and and so it it comes down to weighing two different kinds of environmental problems against each other, right? So you've got climate change in which cordwood, especially if it's if it's cut in a way that's just sort of like the leftover stuff from a forestry project, like you you go and you cut down a bunch of trees, the bottom third of a tree becomes a cherry cabinet and or, you know, probably not. We're probably not going to burn cherry, but like an oak cabinet. Uh, and then the, the top two thirds of the tree, what do you do with that? Part of that goes to be cordwood. Um, so it was just going to sit in the woods anyway and become methane and rot away and, and go up into the atmosphere regardless. Why not, why not turn that into heat while it decomposes? So in terms of carbon emissions, a good way to heat your house. But they're filthy. The particulates emitted are worse than like a giant diesel truck. Uh, what? Yeah. So, so like you see that semi and the black plume of smoke that comes out the back. Like yeah. your wood stove's way worse for your lungs than that diesel truck. So Jeff, the, I think the question is like how close do your neighbors live? How often are people walking around outside near your house? Those are the kinds of things that I think about a lot. Like we, uh, I won't build a fire if I think that there are going to be a lot of people doing like outdoor recreation. Like if it's a really nice day and it's warm out and and like there are going to be all sorts of people in the park that's next to my house, like we're not going to burn wood. Hmm. Um, I'll turn on the heat pump. But if it's, you know, 20 degrees and and like frigid and, and gross out, there'll be at most like three walkers you know, that's kind of the cost benefit I go through when deciding whether to burn. <laughs> Did I root it? Are you like, are you feeling bad about your wood stove? Um, I'm only now feeling bad because Memorial Field is behind my house. Oh, and what's Memorial Field? Well, there's like a big football stadium there and like a track. But I mean, when those things are happening, we probably wouldn't be burning. Memorial Field, for the record, is <laughs> where my cross-country ski team that I coach skis in the winter. I know. <sighs> Erica, I'm the worst. All those kids. <clears throat> when you like to do a thing, cause you think that it's a good thing. 
Then you tell Sam and he says, uh, that's a bad thing. People everywhere are gonna do their thing, but Sam ruined it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> It's tough. It's like like existing in the world as a human being is not the the good thing for the environment. <laughs> what is the best possible way to heat your house? Sweaters. Sweaters. Yeah. yeah. Not heating. Right. Uh, you know. I mean. I like. Obviously, the 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 best thing is to heat less uh, and wear lots of clothes. But the theory of how we decarbonize our economy is electrify everything and make the electricity clean. So it's technically better for you to heat your house with electricity because you've got solar panels. Uh, we're still connected to the grid, though. Right. So me turning on my heat pump still means the grid has to respond in some way. So that could be coming from elsewhere. That could be coming from elsewhere. Yeah. You can't win. No, you can't win. I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Tova. I'm calling from the wonderful University of California, Riverside. My question is, are palm trees good for anything? Um, <laughs> it gets really hot here, and they don't provide any shade. And I've heard that they're really water inefficient. So also they're ugly. Yeah, so like, do they provide any benefit? Okay. Thank you. Bye. Wow. Shade on palm trees. Yeah. Or lack of shade on palm trees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're definitely going to have to outsource this one for sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the first thing about palm trees. I'm going to guess they don't naturally occur in California. I don't know if they grow naturally there. So, so like, could be uh, uh, non-native, not necessarily invasive. What else can we say about them? They're Coconuts. Coconuts come from palm trees. A certain palm tree. The Catholics burn them and smudge them on your forehead once a year. Palm fronds? Palm Sunday. You can use their fronds as roofing material. Oh. And, <laughs> oh, and to fan other people. Yes. Is that what that motion was? To fan was? an Egyptian queen or something. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, let's learn some stuff about palm trees. All right. Palm trees. Oh, I'm so curious. So I started to call palm tree experts. The two that I spoke to on the phone were Brian Brian Botter with the University of Florida and Alan Miro with uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, the thing that immediately becomes clear is that when you're talking about palm trees as a group, generalizing at all is just a bad idea. There, there's something like 2,900 species. Many of them evolved in tropical rainforests and, yes, are quite thirsty, but but also many of them evolved in desert areas and don't require much water at all. And Brian actually says that when he's ever visited Southern California, what he's noticed in, like, San Diego and cities like that is that they're planting native palms that are, are in fact, evolved for to be in um, dry spaces. But both of them were sort of like we need to go to bat for palm trees here because like what do you mean like what are palm trees good for they're amazing i feel like the quintessential image that i have of palm trees is like the palm tree in the hurricane yes and yeah. that is they're, they're amazing at surviving hurricanes they have like incredibly dense root systems that mean that they can they can like really dig in even to just sand um, the leaves, when they blow in the wind, will just sort of like fold up, and so they don't really catch the wind very much. Mm. And the trunks, so the trunks uh, 
Alan referred to them as an amazing feat of vegetable engineering <laughs> because they're they're actually more closely related to like grass than they are to other trees and so they don't have the same structure of uh, that a tree and he's he says that they're really like reinforced concrete where you have this sort of like spongy material and then and then these veins of like like the cambium in a regular tree where the where the sap flows up through um they have these like reinforced veins that go up through them that are like the rebar that make them strong um but then my favorite is the coconut let's talk about the coconut please (laughs) um what so so any thoughts as to why coconuts exist as the seed for for the coconut palm it's the seed, meaning that's what. Okay, so, but what animal can transport a coconut? Right. It's not an animal. It's the ocean. <gasps> oh! Isn't that cool? That's so cool. They're like beach balls. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, the, so they have evolved in in sort of like archipelagos to disperse between islands and they float from island to island and that's how you know so they're all throughout the like the Pacific Islands. Palm trees to me kind of seem like the flamingos of the tree world, the arboreal world. Like say more about that. <laughs> <laughs> like they are so cool on their own, super resilient on their own, but what are flamingos doing for us? Mm. You know, they can drink boiling water and stand in acid, but like, I don't think we need to be asking <laughs> what all of these things can do for us. Yeah. Like that a palm tree can survive a storm and hold tight. That's great for palm trees. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether that provides a benefit to me. But that said, uh, palm trees do provide tons and tons of benefits to us. Um, They're the, the world's third largest cash crop because of date palms and palm oil. Um, well, there we go. Yeah. And also like indigenous people use them for like the the exact quote from Alan Miro was like the uses are legion, um, like you know th- they're used in construction, they're used uh, for thatching of roofs, that you know the used for many 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 things. So not remotely the flamingo. Not even a little bit. Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Erica Janik, Justine Paradise, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Hannah McCarthy. If you liked these questions and would like even more information about the answers, head to our website. The address is outsideinradio.org. If you want us to answer your question, you should give us a call. The number is 1-844-GO-OTTER. On the other hand, if you've got a short question and you think we can sound off in fewer than 280 characters, ask us on Twitter. Find the show at Outside In Radio or me at Sam E.B. NHPR. We're going to start a regular Ask Sam radio segment on our local airwaves. So if you're a New Hampshire listener with a particularly New Hampshire-y question, we're looking for those specifically. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 